Section 20 of Volume 1F of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jim Dennison. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume. Volume 1 F, Section 20, Chapter 66, Part 5. But these vigorous measures received a sudden damp from a passionate address of the lower house, in which they justified all their past proceedings that had given disgust to the king, desired to be acquainted with the measures taken by him, prayed him to dismiss evil counsellors, and named in particular the Duke of Lauderdale, on whose removal they strenuously insisted. The king told them that their address was so extravagant that he was not willing speedily to give it the answer which it deserved, and he began again to lend an ear to the proposals of Lewis, who offered him great sums of money if he would consent to France's making an advantageous peace with the Allies. Temple, though pressed by the king, refused to have any concern in so dishonorable a negotiation but he informs us that the king said there was one article proposed which so incensed him that as long as he lived he should never forget it sir william goes no further but the editor of his works the famous dr swift says that the french before they would agree to any payment required as a preliminary that the king should engage never to keep above eight thousand regular troops in great britain charles broke into a passion codsfish said he his usual oath does my brother of france think to serve me thus are all his promises to make me absolute master of my people come to this or does he think that a thing to be done with eight thousand men van bevening was the dutch ambassador at nemeguin a man of great authority with the states he was eager for peace and was persuaded that the reluctance of the king and the jealousies of the parliament would forever disappoint the allies in their hopes of succor from england orders were sent him by the states to go to the french king at ghent and to concert the terms of a general treaty as well as procure a present truce for six weeks the terms agreed on were much worse for the spaniards than those which had been planned by the king and the prince of orange six towns some of them of no great importance were to be restored to them but Ippers, Kund, Valenciennes, and Ternay, in which consisted the chief strength of their frontier, were to remain with France. Great murmurs arose in England when it was known that Flanders was to be left in so defenceless a condition. The chief complaints were leveled against the king, who, by his concurrence at first, by his favor afterwards, and by his delays at last, had raised the power of france to such an enormous height that it threatened the general liberties of europe charles uneasy under these imputations dreading the consequence of losing the affections of his subjects and perhaps disgusted with the secret article proposed by france began to wish heartily for war which he hoped would have restored him to his ancient popularity an opportunity unexpectedly offered itself for his displaying these new dispositions 
while the ministers at Nimeguen were concerting the terms of a general treaty, the Marquis de Balbais, the Spanish ambassador, asked the ambassadors of France at what time France intended to restore the six towns in Flanders. They made no difficulty in declaring that the king, their master, being obliged to see an entire restitution made to the Swedes of all they had lost in the war, could not evacuate these towns till that crown had received satisfaction, and that this detention of places was the only means to induce the powers of the North to accept of the peace. The states immediately gave the king intelligence of a pretension which might be attended with such dangerous consequences. The king was both surprised and angry. He immediately dispatched Temple to concert with the states vigorous measures for opposing France. Temple, in six days, concluded a treaty, by which Lewis was obliged to declare, within sixteen days after the date, that he would presently evacuate the towns, and in case of his refusal, Holland was bound to continue the war, and England to declare immediately against France, in conjunction with the whole Confederacy. All these warlike measures were so ill-seconded by the Parliament, where even the French ministers were suspected, with reason, of carrying on some intrigues, that the Commons renewed their former jealousies against the King, and voted the army immediately to be disbanded. The king, by a message, represented the danger of disarming before peace were finally concluded, and he recommended to their consideration whether he could honorably recall his forces from those towns in Flanders which were put under his protection, and which had at present no other means of defense. The commons agreed to prolong the term with regard to these forces. Everything, indeed, in Europe bore the appearance of war. France had positively declared that she would not evacuate the six towns before the requisite cession was made to Sweden, and her honor seemed now engaged to support that declaration. Spain and the Empire, disgusted with the terms of peace imposed by Holland, saw with pleasure the prospect of a powerful support from the new resolutions of Charles. Holland itself, encouraged by the Prince of Orange and his party, was not displeased to find that the war would be renewed on more equal terms. The Allied army under the Prince was approaching toward Mons, then blockaded by France. A considerable body of English, under the Duke of Monmouth, was ready to join him. Charles usually passed a great part of his time in the women's apartments, particularly those of the Duchess of Portsmouth where, among other gay company, he often met with Berrion, the French ambassador, a man of polite conversation, who was admitted into all the amusements of that inglorious but agreeable monarch. It was the charms of this sauntering easy life which, during his later years, attached Charles to his mistresses. By the insinuations of Berrion and the Duchess of Portsmouth, an order was, in an unguarded hour, procured which instantly changed the face of affairs in Europe. One Ducrot, a French fugitive monk, was sent to Temple, directing him to apply to the Swedish ambassador, and persuade him not to insist on the conditions required by France, but to sacrifice to general peace those interests of Sweden. Ducrot, who had secretly received instructions from Berion, 
published everywhere in Holland the commission with which he was entrusted, and all men took the alarm. It was concluded that Charles's sudden alacrity for war was as suddenly extinguished, and that no steady measures could ever be taken with England. The king afterwards, when he saw Temple, treated this important matter in raillery, and said, laughing, that the rogue de Croix had outwitted them all. The negotiations, however, at Nimeguen still continued, and the French ambassadors spun out the time till the morning of the critical day, which, by the late treaty between England and Holland, was to determine whether a sudden peace or a long war were to have place in Christendom. The French ambassadors came then to Van Beverning, and told him that they had received orders to consent to the evacuation of the towns, and immediately to conclude and sign the peace. Van Boverning might have refused compliance, because it was now impossible to procure the consent and concurrence of Spain. But he had entertained so just an idea of the fluctuations in the English councils, and was so much alarmed by the late commission given to de Croix, that he deemed it fortunate for the republic to finish on any terms a dangerous war where they were likely to be very ill-supported the papers were instantly drawn and signed by the ministers of france and holland between eleven and twelve o'clock at night by this treaty france secured the possession of franche comte together with cambrai air st omers valunchins tournay ypres bouchaine Kassel, etc and restored to Spain only Chaleroy, Courtray, Oudenard, Aeth, Ghent, and Limburg. Next day Temple received an express from England, which brought the ratifications of the treaty lately concluded with the States, together with orders immediately to proceed to the exchange of them. Charles was now returned to his former inclinations for war with France. Van Beverning was loudly exclaimed against by the ambassadors of the Allies at Nimeguen, especially those of Brandenburg and Denmark, whose masters were obliged by the treaty to restore all their acquisitions. The ministers of Spain and the Emperor were sullen and disgusted, and all men hoped that the States, importuned and encouraged by continual solicitations from England, would disavow their ambassador and renew the war. The Prince of Orange even took an extraordinary step in order to engage them to that measure, or perhaps to give vent to his own spleen and resentment. The day after signing the peace at Nimeguen, he attacked the French army at St. Denis, near Mons, and gained some advantage over Luxembourg, who rested secure on the faith of the treaty and concluded the war to be finished. The Prince knew, at least had reason to believe, that the peace was signed though it had not been formally notified to him, and he here sacrificed wantingly, without a proper motive, the lives of many brave men on both sides, who fell in this sharp and well-contested action. Hyde was sent over with a view of persuading the states to disavow Van Beverning, and the king promised that England, if she might depend on Holland, would immediately declare war, and would pursue it till France were reduced to reasonable conditions. Charles, at present, went further than words. He hurried on the embarkation of his army for Flanders, and all his preparations wore a hostile appearance. But the States had been too often deceived to trust him any longer. 
they ratified the treaties signed at Nimeguen, and all the other powers of Europe were at last, after much clamor and many disgusts, obliged to accept of the terms prescribed to them. Lewis had now reached the height of that glory which ambition can afford. His ministers and negotiators appeared as much superior to those of all Europe in the cabinet, as his generals and armies had been experienced in the field. A successful war had been carried on against an alliance, composed of the greatest potentates in Europe. Considerable conquest had been made, and his territories enlarged on every side. An advantageous peace was at last concluded, where he had given the law. The allies were so enraged against each other, that they were not likely to cement soon in any new confederacy. And thus he had, during some years, a real prospect of attaining the monarchy of Europe, and of exceeding the empire of Charlemagne, perhaps equaling that of ancient Rome. Had England continued much longer in the same condition, and under the same government, it is not easy to conceive that he could have failed of his purpose. In proportion, as the circumstances exalted the French, they excited indignation among the English, whose animosity, roused by terror, mounted to a great height against that rival nation. Instead of taking the lead in the affairs of Europe, Charles, they thought, had, contrary to his own honor and interest, acted a part entirely subservient to the common enemy, and in all his measures had either no project at all, or such as was highly criminal and dangerous. While Spain, Holland, the Emperor, the Princess of Germany, called aloud on England to lead them to victory and to liberty, and conspired to raise her to a station more glorious than she had ever before attained, her king, from mean pecuniary motives, had secretly sold his alliance to Lewis, and was bribed into an interest contrary to that of his people. His active schemes in conjunction with France were highly pernicious, his neutrality was equally ignominious, and the jealous, refractory behavior of the Parliament, though in itself dangerous, was the only remedy for so many greater ills with which the public, from the misguided counsels of the king, was so nearly threatened. Such were the dispositions of men's minds at the conclusion of the peace of Nimeguen, and these dispositions naturally prepared the way for the events which followed. We must now return to the affairs of Scotland, which we left in some disorder, after the suppression of the insurrection in 1666. The king, who at that time endeavored to render himself popular in England, adopted like measures in Scotland, and he entrusted the government into the hands chiefly of Tweddale and Sir Robert Murray, men of prudence and moderation. These ministers made it their principal object to compose the religious differences, which ran so high, for which scarcely any modern nation but the Dutch had as yet found the proper remedy. As rigor and restraint had failed of success in Scotland, a scheme of comprehension was tried, by which it was intended to diminish greatly the authority of bishops, to abolish their negative voice in the ecclesiastical courts, and to leave them little more than the right of precedency among the presbyters. But the Presbyterian zealots entertained great jealousy against this scheme. They remembered that, 
by such gradual steps king james had endeavored to introduce episcopacy should the ears and eyes of men be once reconciled to the name and habits of bishops the whole power of the function they dreaded would soon follow the least communication with unlawful and anti-christian institutions they esteemed dangerous and criminal touch not taste not handle not this cry went out amongst them and the king's ministers at last perceived that they should prostitute the dignity of the government by making advances to which the malcontents were determined not to correspond the next project adopted was that of indulgence in prosecution of this scheme the most popular of the expelled preachers without requiring any terms of submission to the established religion were settled in vacant churches and small salaries of about twenty pounds a year were offered to the rest till they should otherwise be provided for these last refused the king's bounty which they considered as the wages of a criminal silence even the former soon repented their compliance the people who had been accustomed to hear them rail against their superiors and preach to the times as they termed it deemed their sermons languid and spiritless when deprived of these ornaments their usual gifts they thought had left them on account of their submission which was stigmatized as erastianism they gave them the appellation not of ministers of christ but of the king's curates as the clergy of the established church were commonly denominated the bishop's curates the preachers themselves returned in a little time to their former practices by which they hoped to regain their former dominion over the minds of men the conventicles multiplied daily in the west the clergy of the established church were insulted the laws were neglected the covenanters even met daily in arms at their places of worship and though they usually dispersed themselves after divine service yet the government took a just alarm at seeing men who were so entirely governed by their seditious teachers dare to set authority at defiance and during a time of full peace to put themselves in a military posture there was here it is apparent in the political body a disease dangerous and inveterate and the government had tried every remedy but the true one to allay and correct it an unlimited toleration after sects have diffused themselves and are strongly rooted is the only expedient which can allay their fervor and make the civil union acquire a superiority above religious distinctions but as the operations of this regimen are commonly gradual and at first imperceptible vulgar politicians are apt for that reason to have recourse to more hasty and more dangerous remedies it is observable too that these nonconformists in scotland neither offered nor demanded toleration but laid claim to an entire superiority and to the exercise of extreme rigor against their adversaries the covenant which they idolized was a persecuting as well as a seditious band of confederacy and the government instead of treating them like madmen who should be soothed and flattered and deceived into tranquillity thought themselves entitled to a rigid obedience and were too apt from a mistaken policy to retaliate upon the dissenters who had erred from the spirit of enthusiasm 
amidst these disturbances a new parliament was assembled at edinburgh and lauderdale was sent down commissioner the zealous presbyterians who were the chief patrons of liberty were too obnoxious to resist with any success the measures of government and in parliament the tide still ran strongly in favor of monarchy the commissioner had such influence as to get two acts passed which were of great consequence to the ecclesiastical and civil liberties of the kingdom by the one it was declared that the settling of all things with regard to the external government of the church was a right of the crown that whatever related to ecclesiastical meetings matters and persons was to be ordered according to such directions as the king should send to his privy council and that these being published by them should have the force of laws the other act regarded the militia which the king by his own authority had two years before established instead of the army which was disbanded by this act the militia was settled to the number of twenty-two thousand men who were to be constantly armed and regularly disciplined and it was further enacted that these troops should be held in readiness to march into england ireland or any part of the king's dominions for any cause in which his majesty's authority power or greatness was concerned on receiving orders not from the king himself but from the privy council of scotland end of section twenty chapter sixty six part five recording by jim dennison j i m d e n i s o n voice dot com